0: I believe our fourth week in our study of the book of Judges, and uh, I'm having fun so far. Anyone else? This is kind of interesting. Uh, If you have been around church for a period of time, you've probably not heard a lot about Judges. Uh, But if you have, maybe you've heard about the person that is going to be kind of in the center of the action today, a guy named Gideon. Gideon. Uh, We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, By way of review, we keep saying this, and actually in a couple weeks we'll finally get to these verses, but the key verse of the book of Judges comes from chapter 17, 6, and it's the very last verse of the book. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we've said over and over, you're probably sick of this if you've been here every week, that this is a lot like our modern day, this is a lot like our current culture. We have an attitude and a mentality that says, I should be able to do Whatever I want, whenever I want, no one can tell me what to do. And so that verse, even though we think that's a real modern kind of phenomenon, that verse shows us that a long, long, long time ago, God's people... Uh, struggled with this. Uh, Judges has been going through this uh, set of cycles where essentially what happens is the people sin, they rebel against God, and God then gives them over to some oppressors who make their life really difficult. Because of that pain, then they cry out in supplication saying, God help us, God deliver us, and then God sends a rescue or God delivers them and they have a period of, of silence or a period of rest. And so that's what we've been looking at week after week after week. And one of the things that has struck me as I've been studying this book and as I've been talking to you about this just in conversations is we constantly are wondering with these various characters are these people good or bad? Have you found yourself wondering that? Like, like Ehud, okay, he's God's deliverer. I should be rooting for him, but that was a pretty gruesome way to kill King Eglon. Like, that seems kind of rough. Um, wh- what do we make of this? Are these people good? Are they the good guys or are they the bad guys, right? I know when you watch a movie or when you watch a TV show, you pretty quickly want to try to discern, okay, whose, whose side am I on? Who am I pulling for? Who am I rooting for? And what makes judges so hard is that it's very difficult to put these people very clearly as good or bad, right? Uh, th- these characters, and especially Gideon is like this, they're a lot like Walter White. Some of you know Walter White? few of you are chuckling, you know Walter White. Here's uh, Walter White, he's from Breaking Bad. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Breaking Bad, uh, what makes Walter White very difficult to, to know what to do with is he's like this wonderfully brilliant teacher who's diagnosed with cancer and decides that in order to pay for his medical bills, he's going to start making meth. And what's hard for all the people that have been fans of Breaking Bad is they go, on one hand, you love Walter White, on the other hand, how could I possibly be rooting for this guy? This is horrible. And I was thinking, you know, Walter White's not unique. There are a lot of people like this in culture, right? There are people like Tom Brady, best quarterback <laughs> of all time. Best quarterback of all time. And yet he's a total snake, right? You have, you have Mark Zuckerberg who, you know, people like him, but he's a jerk. And you have Thomas Jefferson, founder of the country, but famous slave owner. You have Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, who doesn't like Sister Act? Right? But then you watch The View and you're like, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know how I feel about her. And then obviously the Donald, right? He's the guy, right? He's going to make something great again, uh, maybe, but maybe just himself. And so we're not really sure what to think about that. Or Dr. Dre, right? The kind of pioneer of gangster rap. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And he sold beats for billions of dollars to Apple. What do we make of him and Taylor Swift? I mean, parents of girls you know the agony. Is she good or bad? I don't know. I can't, I can't tell, right? And, and we're often kind of put in this place where we don't really know what do we make of, of these people. And Gideon is a wonderful example of that. I was talking with my dad last week uh, before the 5 p.m. service. We were hanging out watching the football games. And he said, hey, so he hadn't been to church yet. He said, what are you talking about tonight? I said, well, we're kind of doing the first message related to Gideon. And he goes, Gideon? He goes, is it... Uh, isn't the group that puts Bibles in all the hotels, aren't they named after Gideon? And I said, you know what, that's right. I hadn't, I hadn't remembered that or thought of that. But Gideon's International is a group that, of businessmen and people that hand out Bibles uh, all over the world. And I went on their website to see if I could find some history of why they called it Gideon. And apparently, uh, way back in the day, uh, William Knights and a few other people were gathered. They were praying. They knew their mission. They knew what they wanted to do. What what are we going to call it? And uh, this one, one of the founders said, we should be called Gideons. And then this is what it says on their website. He then read the sixth and seventh chapters of Judges and showed the reason for adopting that name. They said, Gideon's courageous and he's bold and he's willing to do what God says. They read the sixth and seventh chapters. And as I read that, I said, they should have read the 8th chapter. <laughs> because what we're going to see is that Gideon is this very conflicted figure. There are elements of him that you go, "Yeah, he's my guy." And then other elements you go, "Ooh, I don't want to be associated with him." And that's really a lot of how the Bible is. Think about all the biblical characters. Abraham's that way father of faith he believed God it was counted to him as righteousness and next moment he's you know letting someone else have his wife Moses murdered a guy and then it seemed to be sort of redeemed and he's following the Lord and then out in the desert he sort of has it his own way and he strikes the rock and God says okay you're not gonna be able to go in the promised land anymore or the apostle Paul Right? First he persecutes Christians, then he has an encounter with Jesus, becomes a champion of the church, but even then it seems like in this encounter with John Mark, his attitude gets the best of him and there's some division there and, and he can't always get along with everybody. We've got to see here, I hope just, just briefly for you to understand this, what that points to is that there's only one good guy. It's Jesus. Because that same tension that same muddiness, that same, is is it good or bad, could be said of every single one of us. There are moments where anyone could watch us and go, yes, that is God's woman. And other moments where they'd go, she says she's a Christian? And so this is a messy, cloudy, gray sort of book. And what it points to is a very clearly uh, beautiful, sinless, perfect Savior, Jesus. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover uh, the story that really goes from the end of Judges 6 all the way up to uh, through chapter 9. And uh, I'm not going to be able to read all of that. We read a portion of it just a moment ago. But I'm going to kind of tell you the story. Uh, make sure you kind of know enough to understand it. And then uh, we can uh, apply some lessons from there. We saw last week we were introduced to Gideon uh, because the people of Israel, again, had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Midianites had come in and were beginning to oppress them. And God raises up Gideon. Gideon is afraid. Gideon is fearful. Gideon isn't sure that God could use him. He says, God, I, I don't know. I come from a really small group of people. I'm not very impressive. And God's promise to him, God's trump card is, but I will be with you. And so he calls him then to tear down this altar to Baal that's on his father's property. And even though he does it at night because he's afraid, he does it. And we saw what happens when people's idols are threatened. They get very angry and they get very furious. And because of that whole episode, it said in verse 32 of chapter 6, chapter 6:32, therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now that name, uh, Jeroboam or Jerobal, however you want to say that, uh, Gideon's referred to a number of times throughout the rest of the story that way. Now what you see at the end of chapter 6 is this famous story where Gideon uh, is still not totally sure that he's kind of in the will of God. And so he goes to God and he says, hey God, I've got a deal I need to make with you. If you're really with me, if you're really for me, here's what I want to have happen. I'm going to put out this wool fleece and I'm going to put it out overnight and if in the morning it's wet, but the area around it is dry, then I'll know that this is all from you. Well, he goes and he does it, and sure enough, the fleece is wet and the area around it is dry. Anyone know why? Because that's what happens when you put things out overnight. Right, the, the, the dew col- is collected in these, and he realizes, well, that wasn't a very good test, actually. Um, so he says, "All right, God, I want you to sw- I want to swap it. I'm going to put a fleece out, and if it's dry in the morning, but everything else is wet, then I'll know it's really from you." And we see again that Gideon is sort of this insecure. Oh, I don't know. Tell me again. Tell me I can do it again. Are you sure, God? All right, that's his whole mentality. And yet, in the midst of that, God meets him. God. In fact, makes it where the fleece is dry and everything else is wet. And then here's the famous story uh, with the life of Gideon as well, is in chapter 7, verse 1. Go ahead and take a look at that. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, Read this carefully. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Huh? Gideon's there, we'll we'll see in just a moment, with about 32,000 people in his army. And God says, that is way too many people for me to be able to win. I'm not going to win with that many people. Now, is God saying, I'm, if there's that many people, I literally can't do it? Or is, or is he saying something else? Well, we keep reading. He says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into the hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. This is perhaps the key verse to understanding this whole section of Scripture. God is saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. If they have that many people and then they win, they're going to think it's because we were awesome. And I don't want them saying that. That's their whole problem. That's the whole heart of idolatry saying, we're a big deal, but God's a small deal. And God says, no, I want them to think that I'm a big deal. And so God begins to whittle down this army. He says, hey, tell the people who, you know, they're kind of afraid and they don't want to come that they can leave. And a bunch of them leave. They, they head off. And then there's a, a, about 10,000 or so people left. And there's this whole sifting story where God says, all right, go down uh, to, to some water. And, and I want you to group people. Get the people who lap the water like a dog. Put them in one group, Team A. And the people who get on their knees to drink, put them in team B. Well, only about 300 people are in team A. And God says, there we go, 300 people, that's perfect. Now, it's funny, a lot of commentators have tried to make a big deal about the way to drink. Well, it was because when you lapped like a dog, you were still looking up to see where the enemy was, and you were more astute, you were a better warrior. What? <laughs> the whole point of this story is what? God is going to do it, right? This isn't a story about how, well, God's going to try to get the really valiant people on his side. This is a story about how God is going to use weak people who are totally overmatched, and he's going to do it so that he gets the glory, he gets the credit. Do you see that? And so he whittles the army down to 300, and that's where we picked it up in verse 9. This is where we read just a moment ago, and just to summarize what we read, Gideon is still a little bit afraid, and God says, hey, listen, you're going to go into battle against these folks, but if you're still not sure, then why don't you and one of your, your people just sneak into the camp, and, and, he, and so he's afraid, he doesn't want to do it, so he sneaks into the camp, just him and this other guy, and they overhear this conversation. It says in verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said... Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. The other guy said, you need to not have pizza so late at night. That's a weird dream. But amazingly, this guy sees it as a message from God. Verse 14, and his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So you get this? Gideon is still so afraid. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. He sneaks in and he overhears a Midianite saying, we're toast tomorrow. Right, this is what I imagine the Broncos pregame thing will be like, like. Cam Newton is too much for us. We just aren't going to be able to stop it, right? And and he sneaks in, and so he hears this, and finally it's like, yes, the light goes on. Okay, I can do it. We can do it. Yes, let's do it. And so he goes back to the camp, and he gathers up all the people. He says, all right, we're going to divide you into companies. We're going to put trumpets in your hands and torches with jars, and we're going to do all this stuff. And then in verse 18, when I just was reading this months ago as we were preparing for this series, verse 18 just made me go, huh? Because think about everything that's happened up to this point. God has called Gideon and said, I'm strong, I'll be with you. God has said, all right, I'm going to give you the whole fleece thing, even though you just need to it's like suck it up and believe me. Oh, you're still not sure. Well, I sent a dream to this other guy. Just Do you realize this is for me? And then verse 18. Gideon, instructions to his people. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord! And for Gideon! What? This is why we've called this message the danger of and. Wasn't it enough for it to be for the Lord? Wasn't it the Lord who had called him? Wasn't it the Lord who was with him? Wasn't it the Lord who had built him up and encouraged him and made sure, verse 2, lest Israel boast over me? And now Gideon is going to go, it's for the Lord and for me. Well, they go into battle. Look at their battle plan. This is really (laughs) remarkable. This shows you how seriously God wanted them to see that it was from him. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Now, now, just think about this. They're holding a torch in their left hand, a trumpet in their right hand. What are they not holding? Swords. Swords. This is quite a strategy, right? Is this a strategy designed to say, we're great fighters? No, and so what happens? It says in verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So these Midianites start killing each other in the panic of what's happened in the middle of the night as they've blown trumpets and they see these torches, right? The torches probably made them think there were so many more people and they just are panicking and start killing each other and it's dark and it's it's clear the Lord did this. I mean, isn't this amazing? Every part of this is saying, lest Israel boast over me, Don't boast over me. Don't take a share of the glory. This is my glory. Well, from this point, Gideon uh, turns. Up to this point, he's been afraid. He's been unsure, he's been insecure, and now his insecurity takes a different form and he becomes vicious. He becomes full of revenge. What you see in chapter 8 is that a few of the Midianite kings got away. And these were kings who had killed his brothers. And so he's in the process of chasing these few folks down, the few remaining people that have been survived from this battle. And at one point he actually comes to Succoth. This is what it says in chapter 8 verse 4. Um, Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. He says to the people of Succoth, uh, he says, hey, will you give us some bread? Will you give us kind of a place to rest while we're pursuing these bad guys? And they say, well, have you caught them yet? Because if you haven't caught them yet, we don't have anything for you. Like, Let us know when you actually catch them. And so here's what he says in chapter 8, verse 7. So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So he goes on, he pursues, he chases them, and eventually he finds them. And after he finds them, and after he gets them, it says that he went uh, and found a young man from Succoth and kind of interrogated him. said, hey, give me the names of all the elders of the city. Give me the names of all the people who didn't help me. It says in chapter 8, 16, and he took the elders of the city and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Verse 18, then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, these are the kings he's pursuing, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you were, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. He said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. This this feels like a mob scene, right? Because then he says, verse 20, so he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid for he was still a young man. And so Gideon does it himself. You've seen this remarkable turn. And then it gets even more interesting. Verse 22 of chapter eight. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They say, hey, Gideon, you've saved us. Why don't you be our king? We don't have a king. We need a king like all the other nations. Why don't you be the king? Gideon said to them, verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. By the way, when we look at that theme verse of every week, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The solution there is not that there would be a human king, but they would look to God as king. And so Gideon actually gets this answer right. Think about it. Hey, Gideon, you're, you're the hero. You're the, you're the George Washington. You led this battle. Why don't, you be, why don't you be king? He says, no, 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 not me. The Lord, the Lord's king. And then everything he does after that acts as though he thinks he's the king. It's almost as though when the people said, hey, we want you to be king, he had his fingers crossed and was like, no, 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 the Lord's king. Not me. But in his mind he's gonna actually act like king because what he does next is he says, hey, uh, everybody, give me your gold and your silver from the spoil of that last battle. He starts kind of collecting taxes, if you will. He makes that gold, he makes it into an ephod and an ephod was a kind of vest that priests would wear. They would have different stones and they would have these two particular stones that were sort of like uh, stones that you would uh, almost like rolling, uh, casting lots or rolling dice or you know, kind of a magic eight ball kind of thing. What does God want me to do? And so if you ever wanted counsel If you ever wanted God to speak into something, you would have to go to a place where this ephod was so that the high priest using these stones could be able to kind of give you a a prophecy of some sort. This is how it worked. And Gideon takes all the gold from all the taxes he's collected and he makes an ephod and he makes that ephod in his hometown. And that's where he keeps it. So that if you want wisdom from God, if you want guidance from God, where do you have to go? To the town of Gideon. That's exactly what a king would do. It says in this passage that he had many, many wives and concubines, concubines even in different cities. That's something a king does. And in case you're still like, I don't know, it doesn't really say anywhere exactly that he wanted to be king. Do you know what he named his son who fills up chapter 9? Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? Abimelech literally means my father is a king. So he says, no, 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 I'm not the king, I'm not the king. Then he collects taxes like a king, consolidates power to his home city like a king, gets a harem like a king, names his kid, my dad's the king. Something has turned in Gideon. And yet we read still in Judges eight twenty eight. so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more in the land of And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, pay attention to that. We've said that that phrase marks the end of a cycle. What's significant about here in in chapter 8, verse 28, is that's the last time we're going to read that in this book. From this point, there's not going to be any more rest. You're actually going to see kind of an incomplete cycle that happens. There's not going to be any more silence. There's not going to be any more Sabbath. There's not going to be any more rest. The people of God have so turned their hearts... That there is no more rest for the people of God. While chapter 9, you can read it, it's all about Abimelech, uh, one of Gideon's sons from a concubine who decides he's going to kill all his other 70 brothers and he's going to elevate himself as king. God is not mentioned in all of chapter 9, which is an indication that the descendant here of Gideon has just gone totally off the rails. some story, huh? Is he good or is he bad? Yeah. What do we learn? Four things. Here's the first one. God is kind even when our faith is weak. God is kind even when our faith is weak. Here's what I saw this week. There are gonna be, for those of you who are like, we just need to emphasize God's grace. We just need to emphasize God's grace. There's gonna be parts of this story that you resonate with. You're like, yes, oh yeah, that's this part. For those of you who are like, we need to obey God for heaven's sakes. He gave us rules. He's supposed to be a king. Like, come on. There's gonna be parts of this this you're gonna like. We see both. We see elements of that. In this first part, we see the mercy of God. God is kind even when our faith is weak. Over and over and over. Gideon is not very courageous. Gideon is not very bold. And I've wondered as I've wrestled through this, because the Bible deals with unbelief in a few different ways. In some places, the Bible seems to say, hey, it's okay. You just need the littlest, tiny little bit of seed of faith, and that can move mountains. In other places, Jesus says, how long do I have to be with this unbelieving generation? Come on already. Which is it? Well, our unbelief does dishonor God. Our unbelief does say, I don't trust you, God. I'm not sure you're for me, God. I think I need to cover my bets and do it my way, God. So unbelief is wrong. It is sinful. And yet, and yet, God meets us there. We go, oh, no, I got to do the fleece thing. I got to put out a test. And God goes, you really don't need to. but okay. He's merciful. And what this shows us is that our relationship with God does not rest on the strength of our faith. It rests on the promise and power of God. Right? This is true throughout the whole Bible. I want to show you just a short clip from D.A. Carson, a message that he gave, uh, just a little clip where he makes a similar point, and he's talking about the the, few people on the Passover. The Passover was the the, the way that God got the people of Israel out of Egypt, where they sacrificed the Passover lamb, put the blood on the door, and the angel of death showed up. Uh, I think this helps you kind of make this same idea, so go ahead and take a look.
1: Picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. (laughs) The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the, the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you, you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and It's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. You know, it's all right for you. you got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight. You, you, you know, I, I know what, what God says, and I have put the blood there, but, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. Preach. That's
0: exactly right. And there's some of you that need to hear that because you're constantly discouraged. You're not doing enough. You're not believing hard enough. You're filled with doubts. You're filled with questions. And you need to be encouraged. It doesn't rest on the intensity of your faith. It rests on the blood of the Lamb, the mercy of God. But despite that, this passage tells us that our sin and our disobedience and our dishonoring of God leads to some tough places. Now let me just tell you this. Normally when I preach a sermon, I try to have all the conviction part at the beginning. And then all the like good news about the mercy at the end because that tends to be how the gospel flows, right? There's bad news, hey, you're a sinner, then there's good news, Jesus died for you. But this story presents it in the opposite direction. And so that's what I'm gonna do. So that's kind of the end of the good news. And the rest of it says, listen, God is merciful. And, And get this, Gideon is actually mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. That's amazing. And yet the consequences of his sin are are devastating throughout the rest of the story. Here's the second thing we learn is that insecurity is a vicious cycle. Chapter six and seven, Gideon thinks that all this depends on him. Oh, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I'm big enough. I don't know if I'm powerful enough. It all depends on me. Tell me again. Tell me again how good I am. Tell me again. Tell me again I can do it. Tell me again. Show me again. Insecure, insecure, insecure. And then in chapter 8, he thinks that the victory was because of him. Aren't I something? Look at me. Aren't I strong? For the Lord and for Gideon. Oh, you crossed me. I'm going to wipe you out in the thorn patch. That's the life cycle of insecurity, and it's vicious. right? Some people, they just constantly need you to prop them up, prop them up. Oh, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And then once they do well, they just are in Sufferable to live with. Are you insecure? Either by saying, "Oh, I don't believe anything," just, just, uh, it's not. I can't do it. Or by being like muscled up and bowed up and look to God, not yourself. Here's a third thing we learn from this story: is that success can be more dangerous than failure. Success can be more dangerous than failure, right? As long as Gideon's weak, he's kind of okay, right? He keeps having to depend on God. He keeps having to go, oh yes, God, I need your help. But as soon as he begins to think he's strong and successful and victorious, it goes off the rails. Success is really, really dangerous. Why? Why, because often success Actually nurtures our idolatry rather than confronts it. Think about this. Think about a a person who idolizes career success. Right? That is not just an important thing, it's the ultimate thing. I've got to make a name for myself in this industry, I've got to make this amount of money. I might even couch it by saying I need to provide this kind of life for my family, but but my career is, is my idol. It's what I'm about. What's the best thing for me from God's perspective? Is it to be successful? Is it to advance quickly and get lots of recognition and get lots of money, is that really best for me? Or will that in fact just reinforce to my idolatrous heart, oh yes, I'm getting what I want. Would it not be actually more gracious of God to allow me to fail in my career? To allow me to experience pain and loss that might wake me up and go, oh, career is not everything. God is. Some of you, you idolize romance. If I could just be in this relationship, if I could just have this relationship the right way, if I could just be out of this relationship, you've idolized this, you've held it up. And you go, God, how how come you're not letting me have romance? Maybe he's saying, because I love you. And I know that it grips your heart too much. So, so, so what do we make of this? Do we go, okay, well, then let's all be failures. Don't try hard, don't get out of bed, don't work, don't do anything, just just be a loser. That's what God wants. No, I don't think that that's at all what God wants. But what it is saying is when you experience success, be careful. Be careful. The whole pattern in the Bible is once people have things go well, they forget God. And they think it's their strength. All of a sudden, it's for the Lord and for me. That's a dangerous place to be. I wonder about this for, for, um, just as a parent. Right? On one hand, I want my kids to succeed all the time. I want them to always be in a position to win. I want them to always be in a position to do well in school. I want them to always be in a position where their friends like them and everything's good around them. That's what I want as a parent. Isn't that what you want as a parent? And so when it's hard or when it's difficult, you're tempted to sort of rush in, right? Try to rush in and fix it. My, My parents were school teachers. They called it helicopter parenting. Here they come. Might it actually be better to let our kids experience some failure? Now, I don't want them to experience devastating failure, but might it be good for them to not be the best kid on their team? Might it be all right for them to be in a school where there are kids a lot smarter than them? Or might it even be better for them to be in a place where they feel like they're way ahead of everybody and now they have to learn to be humble? I mean, all of these things, right? Do you really want your kid to only succeed? I remember in high school, I went to, my junior year of high school, we had major league scouts at every single practice of my junior year of high school. Why? Because there was a kid on our team who ended up being drafted in the first round and signed for $2 million that year. We had at one point, we actually came down to, to Corona del Sol for spring break and there were over 50 major league scouts. Most teams had brought more than one scout. After every practice, it was like, hey, Darnell's going to go hit with a wood bat for an hour. we will go shag. And Darnell was amazing. He couldn't be touched. He couldn't be stopped. He was an amazing uh, football player, too. Had a full ride to the University of Texas. His senior year in, in the high school championship, he rushed for 300 yards and five touchdowns. He was unstoppable. And he signs for $2 million. And you know what happened? He'd never had failure. He'd never struggled. It had never been hard. It was really, really tough. Maybe it's okay to let our kids experience failure. Maybe when we're experiencing failure, rather than seeing it as God abandoning us, maybe we could experience it as God saying, hey, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you think you're great. Turn to me. Success can be dangerous. Here's the last thing. We've kind of said this, is that stealing God's glory has disastrous consequences consequences. And it just strikes me in verse 23 how easy it is to say the right thing and how hard it is to do the right thing, right? What does he say? He says, no, 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 I'm not king. Don't treat me like king. Only Yahweh is king. And then everything he does says the opposite. And it's so easy to say the right thing and do the wrong thing. And he's stealing a share of God's glory. He's saying, I want some of the credit. I want some of the recognition. God hates this. This is why it says in James and in 1 Peter, it says this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want God opposing you? That's an active word. God is against. God is pushing against those who are proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't think you want God pushing on you. I don't think you want God resisting you, opposing you. Humble yourself. How do we do this? How do we avoid becoming glory stealers? How do we avoid the danger of and? I think of two ways specifically. One is we fight that kind of glory stealing with, by expressing gratitude to God. Not just feeling gratitude, not just feeling thanks, but expressing it, telling God in prayer, God, thank you for this. Thank you for this gift that you've given me. Thank you for this opportunity to use it. Thank you for the success. God, I see this as from you. God, I don't in any way want to receive glory for it. I don't want to receive credit for it. I want you to. And I think only if you will actually express your gratitude for the blessing and the success and the things in your life will you have any chance of of not having it go to your head. You've got to fight with gratitude. And you have to take advantages of moments where you can serve and be treated like a servant. It's interesting, you know, as a pastor, I read all this stuff about how church should work and whatever, and a lot of the consultants will say, you know, it's just such a tragedy in our churches. We have these CEOs and these really powerful business people, and, and the only thing that they ever have an opportunity to do is to, like, hand out programs and, and do kids' ministry. Like, they're really underutilizing their gifts. Now, get this. I kind of think that's true. I think we could do a better job of, of helping leverage some of the strengths and experiences of, of people like that. And at the same time, might the best thing in the world for a CEO of a successful company be to hand out programs and teach three-year-olds who don't care who he is, who aren't impressed by him, who aren't going to try to use the situation for more? Wouldn't it just be good? for that man to serve and to be treated like a servant. Right? How do you treat a servant? You don't, you don't thank him. You don't go, oh wow, that was so great. Wouldn't it be good for someone who just constantly is being, oh you're great, you're great. Wouldn't it be great to just not have to be great? But if you don't fight to stay small, if you don't fight for gratitude, the world will not cause you to do it. And all of that success will go to your head. And God's glory, you'll try to take a share of it. We said at the beginning, there's mercy. God's merciful to weak faith. But the consequences of making it all about you are devastating. The consequences are severe. If you're in a place where you're blowing it, God's mercy is there. But listen, there were all these years that passed for Gideon. And he wasted the opportunity to turn the nation, heart and soul, to God. He wasted the opportunity to raise his sons in a way where they, would pass, where they would pass on the faith. He wasted that. I don't want you to waste your life. You only get to do your 20s once. You only get to do your 30s once. You only get to do retirement once. You only get to parent your kids once. You only get your first marriage once. Don't waste it by making everything all about you. Don't steal the glory, but reflect it back to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. And God, I, uh, I pray for us as a church that has experienced a level of success. God, I pray that we would always, uh, as leaders and as members and as people that are part of this church, God, that we would uh, give you thanks for your blessing. And so God, I do. I give you thanks for the people who are here. I give you thanks for the ways you've provided for us. I give you thanks for the many different people you use to bring blessing to your church and community. And God, I pray for each of us that as we Reflect on these things that we would desire to be small. We desire to give you the glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.